All right. Here we go. Quiet. Roll up. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and put them all into some sort of context. See it across the microphone from me as Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief Adam Driver. I mean, Rich Drees. Uh, wow. Ouch. <laughs> ah, thank you. Maybe. I don't know. I was just, my brain was somewhere else. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, and seated across the microphone from me is Film Buff Online Contributing Editor, Natasha Bogutsky. Mm. How are you feeling today, Natasha? Huh? How are you feeling? As opposed to last week when your head was full of the schmutz. Oh, God, that record. was so bad. Yes. I am feeling much, much better. Good. Um, Glad to hear it. Yeah, I had a bit of a sinus infection last week as that made us not able to uh, record, not because of coughing, but because I sounded like a bass. Yeah. Bass. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I briefly thought just, you know, billing the show as me speaking with um, Isaac Hayes for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I didn't I'm, think I'll that tell you work. right now, no one would listen to that. What? You bill it as you're talking with James Earl Jones, on the other hand, and you've got an audience. I think I would have an audience if people thought I had a new interview with Isaac Hayes, seeing as how he's been dead for how many years now? He's not Tupac. Well, <laughs> you don't think people would tune in to hear Isaac Hayes, Oscar winner Isaac Hayes, actor Isaac Hayes, star, former star of South Park Isaac Hayes. Who? You are not this dumb. Isaac Hayes, the man who wrote the theme from Shaft. Oh. Yeah, who? Oh, God. You're just doing this to irritate me now, aren't you? <laughs> uh, as, uh, I'm just talking from a generational standpoint. Who? <laughs> I, I I know who he is, but I'm not quite certain everyone else would. I think people in your generation would understand the voice of Chef from South Park. At least. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't even know he was the voice of Chef from South Park. Okay. And first of all, and second of all... I don't think when people would... watch South Park, they really do a deep dive into who is voicing who, with the exception of, what's what's their name, Trey Parker and Matt Stone? Yeah. That, those are pretty... When we think South Park, that's all we think. Second of all, no offense to your generation, but this podcast isn't just for them. There are people in my generation, the land in between, the land beyond me, that also would be very interested, I think, in, Isaac, in an interview with Isaac Hayes. No, if, I you know, agree. we were still alive. And this is why we get such good conversations. I know. Because it just makes me sad for not you, but your generation. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about my generation. <laughs> yeah, and probably half of them don't know that. That song either, so I think they ironically heard, they wouldn't be able to tell you who it was by. I get it, who it was yeah. by, but um, <laughs> I'm sure they've actually heard the song. But yeah, it's been um, unfortunately you were you know under the weather last week. Oh, I was and dying. I know. I felt really bad for they you. They started singing at work when I had to go back to work and I was still, you know, down on the Wait. dumps. They started singing soft kitty warm kitty little what? ball of fur to me. What? You work at a bank. I know. Why are they singing to you at a bank? Because it <sighs> because in our group chat I did um the I'm dying gif that Sheldon does from Big Bang. I'm dying. No one cares about that show. You're the only one who doesn't care about that show. I hate show. that nerd minstrel show. It's bleh. You are the only person who doesn't care about that That's show. That's not so. You are in the minority of people who don't like that show. The majority is wrong. I am very strident about my hatred for that show. I know, I know. I know, and I apologize if you like it. I like good it. For you. I'm a nerd. Enjoy your Brussels sprouts. I prefer something different. There. I like Brussels sprouts. <laughs> <laughs> the fuck? Just because you're a picky eater doesn't mean oh, anything. God, here we go. <laughs> and uh, the last five minutes have been nothing <laughs> about what we should be talking about. But, um,. 
but it's been everything that we've had discussed in the last day or two. Right? Yeah. Well, we did, what, a half an hour on a car drive today talking about how much you're a picky eater versus me who will eat everything but pickles. I'm not a picky eater. You- I have a refined and defined taste. <laughs> Oh, come on. Just because there are certain things I don't like doesn't make me picky. It makes me picky if I demand that the group, when we're all out together, only eat certain things or we only go to certain restaurants. I have been open to going to every place we've ever suggested as a group and never once complained. Always found something I could eat on the menu. I think your version of picky and my version of picky are considered to be two different things you want me to be a goat and basically not the greatest of all time which i am but a goat that that, that just (laughs) eats anything and and i'm not i just there are certain things i like certain things i don't like and that's perfectly fine and i feel like i'm under attack from you by this maybe it's because almost everyone i know are goats unless they have an allergy oh my god so what so what Everybody else jumps off the bridge. Are you going to jump off the bridge? I was born to jump off that damn bridge. They're following me down. <laughs> oh, gods. I am seriously thinking I'm going to edit like this last <laughs> seven minutes. Why? It's fun. We give everyone all the movie knowledge. Sometimes it's nice for them to hear us just bicker as human beings. <laughs> It's not, I guess. You're thick. It's not professional. Uh, I'm going to throw this bracelet. It's a a little looser, goosier than I, you know, normally like the the show to be, but. We'll get back on track. Okay. Um, I'm glad you're feeling better. You're certainly feeling your oats right now. I'm feeling Um, saucy. Saucy. Groovy, baby. Um, I hate myself. Uh, I still love you. <laughs> uh, but but I, I took this week uh, and I caught up on a lot of movies on Criterion because I mm-hmm. was sick. Yeah. You you were watching a lot of those Millier shorts and the Charlie Chaplin shorts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I've knocked out like, I think I'm sitting somewhere close to 13 or 14 films since the beginning of the month. Nice, nice. That's that's shorts and features though. Yeah, it's a mix. Yeah, it's a mix. But you know, uh, mm-hmm. when uh, Letterbox doesn't really distinguish, distinguish. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I do, and that's how I use my Letterbox. I don't track my, uh, my shorts. Watch it watching. I don't usually there, but... track shorts unless they were of a certain time period where that's all there was. Fair enough. So, like, when movies are done in 1900, they're not going to be two-hour-long features. You're going to be finding things that are somewhere mm-hmm. between 5 to 20 minutes, and that was that was their feature. Yeah, true. Um, so, yes, I um, count those. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, I know I got my, uh, my shot of yapping about movies in. I uh, appeared on Loud Nerdy with uh, J.W. Colwell. Uh, Back on Wednesday, mm-hmm. last Wednesday, it was a good time. We talked, we did an hour on the Black Widow. Well, it started off and kind of circled around and shot around with a bunch of tangents, but we did, you know, we talked mostly about that Black Widow, uh, jo- uh, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I I will forever disagree with JW that Black Widow was a watershed movie. I'm sorry, uh, it's uh, not. In terms of theatrical exposition. Expo- Posit, expo, exhibition, excuse me. Turning a flipping porky pig there for a second. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, you're right. I agree with you on that. It's not, um, I think we're not seeing, we're only seeing a temporary shift because of COVID. And I mean, we're seeing it again this weekend with uh, the low box office for uh, Suicide Squad. It's probably not going to clear twenty-five to thirty million mm-hmm. um, because people can stay home and watch it on HBO Max as part of their subscription. Yeah, and it's forcing more people to go and watch it on HBO right now because of the Delta variant. Mm-hmm. People are starting to get a little more worried about going back to the theaters, and that's why I kind of think tracking. I mean, well, obviously you have to track box office for business, but 
turning it into a horse race now is just foolish. Uh, I, I'm tired of seeing the arguments on social media about, oh, well, Suicide Squad opened up worse than uh, Birds of Prey opened up to. Yeah, that was a year and a half ago before COVID. And, you know, there's stupid arguments where they try to draw parallels that fall apart under the merest slightest scrutiny. And I'm tired of it. The only one that should be compared to Suicide Squad at this moment is probably uh, Wonder Woman. The second Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman 84? Yeah. Yeah, because they're both from Warner Brothers. They both uh, did a theatrical release, day and date, with being available on HBO Max if you have HBO Max. And you're during 50, COVID, yeah. Yeah, during COVID. And even then, I mean, that was back, that was what, Christmas? That, that was Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas Day, you have people staying at home, you have families staying in to watch it. I mean, it would be interesting to see what the streaming numbers are on that versus Suicide Squad. Um and I don't think Warner's is really probably going to release that information. No. So there's so much, so much of that that's going on right now that makes it really hard to draw concrete uh, conclusions about how things are working. Mm-hmm. That it frustrates it frustrates me when I see it. Now the Scarlett Johansson thing, though, there, I think there's enough facts out there that bolster her lawsuit. And um, rather than get into it again, because I don't want to spend an hour talking about it again. Uh, I have no desire to spend an hour talking about you, you, it. You barely, I can barely engage you for five minutes on this one because we talked about it earlier and you were just like, nah. I, and I don't blame you. It's the business side can be kind of boring. It does impact what we see in theaters at times. It's and, not that it's boring. It's just when it comes back around to it, people are just like, well, what is that going to do for theatricality and for streaming? Mm-hmm. And it's like, if anything, you're looking at people not trusting the studios to uphold their word. And well, that's a good default it. position to have. Yeah. Honestly, they're never going to. Oh, I don't. If I can find a way to get out of paying you the extra money, I probably do owe you. I'm going to still. That's that's the business. That's always been the business. I mean, going back into the golden ages of the studio system you still have that issue where you know uh, there there were stars that sued because of things in their contract um you know going forward you had the studio that big paramount suit against uh that art buckwald sued the studio over um coming to america America. the the eddie murphy movie and you know art buckwald was basically like i'm a successful columnist i don't need to keep people in Hollywood happy, I can afford to piss them off. So I'm going to go ahead with this suit, and he did. And um, and there's this fascinating book on it called Fatal Subtraction, which I would recommend if you were interested in that. Um, if you don't want to read a lot about accounting, then maybe don't read the book. Um, but yeah, it's it's always been part of the thing, and you and actors all the time are ordering audits of production. Uh, financials in order to make sure that they're being paid properly mm-hmm. it's just it doesn't it just it doesn't get to the point where it did with um scarlett johansson and that's really on bob chapek the new head of disney not knowing how to deal with talent but that's a whole nother thing but now with other people also coming in emma stone and all that they're jeopardizing their their sequel with her for Corella mm-hmm. because of what this did via streaming versus theatrical and her getting gypped on it. Yeah. You are full on jeopardizing your star wanting to come back and you making more money off of this IP. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's not just that. And, you know, I would be interested in another Cruella film just to kind of see how they further connect those dots and push yeah. that character towards what we saw in 101 Dalmatians, uh, or maybe just push her in an entirely different way and don't have that connect and just explore that character, but with different choices. Like we talked about when we did uh, review the movie a couple mm-hmm. of weeks, a couple of episodes back. But also, you're not just pissing off um, Emma Stone, who might not want to work for Disney anymore. Um, you're pissing off her management. You're pissing off her agents. And she is 
with WME, which is one of the most powerful agencies in Hollywood, which, you know, if you're making one of their star clients upset, they're going to think twice about sending anybody else over to you. So you're risking reducing your talent pool. Uh, Scarlett Johansson's with CCA, another big, powerful agency. And the head of CCA has come out and, you know, very publicly supported Scarlett Johansson in her lawsuit. And so if you piss off CCA, suddenly you're shrinking your available talent pool even further down. It's not a good move for Disney overall, I don't think. No. No. And and that's where it hurts us as film fans. Unfortunately. Because mm-hmm. then we're going to see, um, you know, I hate to say it, but substandard work possibly. Or things that could have been better, at least. Oh, well, this was still good. But, you know, if they had access to, you know, two big agencies worth of talent that, you know, they could have brought in, maybe they could have found a better casting choice for, you know, such and such a person or whomever. It also might be incredibly smart. Who knows? They won't have the big star power name on whatever project that they do. But what if they pull someone who is doing some great work, maybe on the small screen, who isn't repped by one of the bigger agencies and takes them and turns them into something bigger. If you were working at a certain level in Hollywood and you saw that a level of 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 actor in in the profession was being treated a certain way mm-hmm. and not having their contracts honored by a studio, would you want to go work for them? Work for them? Would I want to go work for that studio? Probably not. Okay. So, so but I am not everyone. I know. I know you're not everyone, and not everyone's going to feel that way. When you're working in the business, sometimes whether or not you're able to, uh, you know, keep a roof over your head and, and put food in your belly is going to chump whether or not you want <laughs> the morality of working for one of those bigger studios. Fair enough. Fair enough. There's a lot of factors involved here, and um, it's a very tricky complex game and i know you like playing chess but i think this might even be more complex than that no i mean it is and it isn't i was i was doing some um research this afternoon and i i found some stuff from uh like sebastian stan Mm -hmm. who uh had already started to build kind of a, a name for himself when he hit captain america first avenger he wasn't major but i mean he was he was big on the small screen between his stint on Once Upon a Time and uh, he was on Gossip Girl and he played, he was he was a supporting character who would only recurringly show up. But he was so beloved for being that shitty character that they always wanted him back. Um, and even like when Once Upon a Time tried to do a spinoff of, I think it was called Once Upon a Time in... Uh, in Wonderland or something like that. The Alice in Wonderland spitoff that very short lived. They were going to recast fans got in an uproar about it. And so they just didn't recast his character at all. They just left his character out, which was Mm -hmm. the Mad Hatter. And that's one of the reasons why the show tanked after first season was it didn't have the one character everyone wanted. So no one was watching it. Um, But he said that, when he finished doing, when the film, when Captain America First Avenger actually hit theaters, he struggled to pay his rent like the month after the film was released. And uh, and I think that was a case of he didn't have that contract then because they didn't even know if they were going to bring him back. It was Winter Soldier, which was his first out of the nine film contract with Marvel mm-hmm. Studios. And it's also just a slow case of business affairs, cutting a check yeah. and getting it out. And and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, yeah. yeah. But you're right. I think the studios will always do whatever they can to put more money in their pockets mm-hmm. instead of actually paying their people. Of course. And as That's just business. creators and people who ultimately wouldn't be too upset if we were in that system mm-hmm. uh, instead of, you know, making our films here in Pennsylvania and paying for them out of our own pocket. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If somebody said, here's 40 million, go make that noir thing you're talking about. I would be very happy, but I would still, I think, hopefully retain a little bit of, um, I don't want to say cynicism, but at least shrewdness. Uh, to be able to help us navigate those things as mm. well. 
So I've read mm-hmm. the fine print yes. is what we're getting at. Yes, read the fine. Always read the fine print because <laughs> that's where you're going to get screwed over. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but some of the movies that I caught up on this week um, was um, I caught up with Annette. Yes, um, actually, so did I. It it opened this weekend. It's going to be on uh, Amazon Prime starting the twentieth. And this is something I know you were desperately looking forward to, despite your Adam Driver Freudian slip at the top of the show. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. What? Don't give me that. Um, and I was interested in it um, because of Adam Driver. I think he has got a great singing voice. So I was interested in seeing how he does a full-on musical. Uh, Marion Cotillard, we've seen sing in films before. Mm-hmm. We know she's got a beautiful uh, voice. Uh, I had just watched... Um, Edgar Wright's The Sparks Brothers documentary. So I was all up to speed on the band Sparks, uh, who supplied all the music for this. And I was blown away. I think this musical is definitely one of the most artistic ones ever made that is going to be forgotten, unfortunately. You you think it's it's going to be... It's not going to be a critical darling, at least, and then it's it's going to be a critical darling, and then it's going to disappear. A little too oddball for it's no the great, common folks. Yeah, it's no greatest showman. It doesn't have it. It's very dramatic based, and it doesn't have any rousing theme songs in it that is going to get the kids bopping. True. I, I think the honestly, I think the best song is the first song. So maybe start. Yeah, yeah. I it's an it's anth it's an anthem. It announces that the thing is starting. We see the actors. We see the musicians behind we it. We see the director. We see the director in the in this song, and it's very self referential, self reflexive, um, which which the whole thing is really. I think there's a level where the movie is very much aware that it's a movie musical. Yeah. This this film is very French. And when I say that, I mean <laughs> it's steeped in surrealism. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is not something that American audiences have fully ever gravitated towards and understood. That is fair. That's fair. Um, I mean, I can see why this was very well received at Cannes from uh, the local <laughs> press, but... Some of the international press was a little bit more wary of it. Wary of it, yeah, yeah. It's because they don't understand it. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, there's not, and I think that's the nature of the Hollywood system here is that the big studios need stuff that appeal to a wide audience, mm-hmm. and I think it just becomes a um, self perpetuating cycle where studio films won't take big chances, and therefore. Audiences don't get to see them or aren't exposed to that kind of material, and then they don't have a frame of reference on how to kind of interpret them, and then therefore the studios say, well, we can't make these films because the audience isn't there for them. Yeah. Which which amazes me, like something like um, Darren Aronofsky's Mother ever got made. I still haven't seen that one yet, it's, and I know I need to. It's amazing on so many levels. And it's amazing how many people got upset with it. Uh, or maybe it's not amazing how many people got upset with it. Or it's kind of amazing why people got upset for it for the wrong reasons or the right reasons. I really like it. It's a giant allegorical film. And at some point, do catch up with it so we can have a conversation on or off uh, about it. Because I would really love to uh, kind of dig into your thoughts on that. I will. But surrealism just has such a, a great longstanding history going back all the way to the 20s. Um, Louis Bunuel was one of those uh, directors who kind of got that out into the spotlight. But, you know, actually mm-hmm. finding pieces and bringing them to a wider audience and actually allowing them to pay attention um, it's extremely difficult. I've heard that some of David Lynch's stuff has a, a realm of surrealism to it, yeah, but I'm not. Yes, yes. I, d- d- um, I can't believe I'm forgetting David Lynch. I'm like, <laughs> literally, as I'm like looking at you in the right, uh, left side of my uh, field of vision is my giant Twin Peaks uh, box set up on the shelf there. I am not very felt. I am more versed in like 
Bunuel and Fellini mm-hmm. to a certain extent oh, yeah. is a le- is a little um mm-hmm. is a little surrealist. Um and and more like painters like Salvador Dali. Definitely mm-hmm. a surrealist. Um I I don't really get Lynch. And it's because I I have not been exposed to enough Lynch. That's I've true. seen um, I've seen Dune. I've seen three quarters of Blue Velvet. I those I, are I would say everybody hates Dune. I know you didn't really like it all that I much. I hated it actually. Um, when we were sitting but, in the theater last night, I leaned over to Darren, and Darren actually said he loves Dune. He the, loves the, the Lynch? Lynch version, and I said it was horrible. And he goes, "Why?" I said, "Because there's too much packed in, and if you didn't read the book." You don't understand. Okay. Oh, it. that's what you were talking about. Okay, I yeah. heard you guys going back and forth during the trailer, and I heard part <laughs> of something about don't read the book, or if you haven't read the book. And I thought you were just talking. And about- that's when he finally gave up the goat, is because he goes, <laughs> "Oh, I read the book before seeing the movie, so of course so to me I. it wasn't that bad." Yeah, so did I. But I still recognized it as not the best adaptation, and there were yeah, issues. But you were, with it. yeah. But you're go- you're coming at it also from being a a film analyst as well. I was in still in high school though so but you were for, already... for me to make that leap is kind of good because my my taste in high school is not always great and it may not have always been good but you were in the realm of starting to train yourself whereas my husband is just an average moviegoer he's a, yeah he's a dude he's a guy he's a dude i love a guy. him yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's he doesn't analyze the way that you and i do oh i know and i i i've seen him roll his eyes at us when we get started talking oh my after god out of something the fact that yeah the the fact that we went for 45 minutes on the opening song for black widow was literally 45 minutes talking about why they use smells like teen spirit yeah he was like i don't understand either of these people why am i friends with him why am i married to her i don't know (laughs) but but um um i thought you were talking about how the the new version um is only the first half of the book we did discuss that really quick he goes are they making the second half i go i don't know yet well back to the box office uh, conversation it's going to make the box office numbers the question is is it going to be critically as good and what is the fans going to like it it's going to make the money i do not have your optimism Really? Yeah. Well, it's coming in October. I'm concerned about what the the outlook of the country is going to be in October. I, I, I will agree with you there. However, I will say that when it comes to highly anticipated films of 2021, Dune is at the top of literally everyone's list. It's higher than Marvel. That's it's not, it, I would say it's up there in everybody's top three or a lot of people's top three yeah. uh, because of uh, the director – um the material i think the cast is amazing um the material is tough to adapt you know this is the third full on big scale um version uh that's that's been completed there's been other attempts um the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune is a great documentary on a movie that wound up not getting made um i would recommend if you haven't seen that check it out um but yeah, I'm I'm just concerned that maybe I'm just being old now. I think by October we might be um depends on what happens with the Delta variant, quite honestly. We might see more we might see movies being uh, postponed again. Um specifically No Time to Die, which I know is going to send our Bond fan friend into fucking orbit. <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah, Moonraker. Yeah, uh, he's gonna he's, <laughs> he's gonna, gonna moonraker. He's gonna moon. Uh, that's what we're gonna call it from now on. <laughs> um, but um, no, there, no uh, I I will admit I'm absolutely terrified of that. Oh yeah. Um, but should things still be okay, it's gonna make the money, whether it makes it in the actual uh, theater or if it makes it more on streaming, it's gonna make the money. The question is, are the fans going to enjoy it and are the critics going to praise it? Those are the two things that are going to stand in the way of whether or not the second part gets made. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, though, I, you know, I'm concerned about October. I mean, I think they're leaning or if they haven't, they 
already done it. Uh, they're leaning towards canceling like the New York Auto Show, which is like uh, two weeks from now in New York City in the Javits Center. Which means Comic Con's next. New York Comic Con in October is there's some buzz that it might not happen. I would be it. I would be okay with it not happening. I would be okay with it not happening for safety's sake. Yeah. I would be disappointed. Um, because it's not not only is it a great time, you and I both go, mm -hmm. we see a lot of movie panels, we come mm -hmm. back here and talk about them. You see Outlander panel. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and it's also a great time because, <laughs> you know, we get to see some friends we only get to see that around that time. You know, we only get to hang out with like uh Carol oh. and Joel. Uh because Joel comes over from London. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I, we haven't seen them since 2019. And I, I, I miss them. They're good people. I enjoy, I enjoy talking to them on uh, Facebook and such. But, you know, when we can hang out for an hour and in a place and have food and drinks and just shoot the shit, you know, that those are things that I'm missing because of this. I was trying to record so. in a little deli in Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. <laughs> That was that, was, that uh, came off as a decent episode. Yeah, that was a decent. That episode. was a fun episode. <laughs> uh, go back and uh, find it in the archives because I can't remember what episode number it was. Anyway, it was October 2019. Yes, that'll make it easier. It was our for New York Comic Con <laughs> wrap up episode. Um, but let's circle back around to Annette, which is I think what we were talking about. Uh, we were talking about uh, and surrealism. Lynch's version of surrealism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the surrealism in Annette. Um. How I, how spoilery do you want to get? Okay, we're going to get spoilery, I think. Okay. I don't think we can do this. There's certain parts of the movie that have a very realistic feel to them, um, such as like their home and their backyard, the pool and things like that. It's grounded, yeah. It's very grounded. And then we get to things like- The ship. The ship, exactly. And the storm uh, on the ship. And it feels very- stage bound like it is a a stage play almost and i think what's interesting about that is is because at those moments they want to play them as ambiguous so we don't know exactly what happens on the ship even though we're watching that sequence we don't know what happens to a character we're trying to keep it semi-spoiler free uh, so we're not blowing everything here but we don't know what happens to that one character at that moment exactly and that becomes the driver no pun intended for the um for the drama and uh the the conflict of the second part of the movie really once the conductor comes in who doesn't have a name Simon, uh, uh, Simon uh, Helberg from uh, Big Bang Theory. From Big Bang Theory, yes. He's a, uh, he gives a really good he, performance. This is a great performance here. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, I really do like what he was doing there. Um, um, obviously, we're trying to keep the big spoiler out, which is Annette herself. But that's yeah, like the biggest but, part of the surrealism. Yes. And, okay. Um for a certain portion of the film, uh, when we see uh, the child of Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard's character, um, her name is Annette. And when we first see her as a baby, up through about a certain age, we don't see her. It's not Annette is not portrayed by like an actual baby or anything, or a CG recreation, or human at all. It's yeah, it's an it's like a marionette. It's a marionette doll, yeah. Mm-hmm. That they, well, they, they, um, you know, they probably CG'd out all the puppet rods and everything mm -hmm. for it, but it still looks like a puppet, you know, and you can see the, the, the hinges and the seams and everything. And I think that's an interesting choice because I think it kind of says that this child isn't its own person yet. It's in a way being controlled by both the mother and the father. Yeah. For for different reasons and for different things, and so there, yeah, there's a, a fragile. There's also a fragility to her as well, um, and how they coddle her at the beginning, and how they use her. That yeah, 
you you using a marionette doll it was kind of it states all of that mm-hmm. and then when we finally get our little girl and the the puppet is left behind it uh that's that's the it's arc a, of the story. Yeah, it, is really it's is her, her. Yeah, is her finally mm-hmm. being able to stand up on her own two feet. Yeah, the first the first half of the movie is setting up her existence, mm-hmm. um, and then the second half is really we finally focus in on her, and it's about her. And I mean, I, I mean, it's a weird I, version of child abuse too. Yes, um, there's there's certain elements of um, you know an abusive upbringing. Um, but at the same time, there's elements of both parents, um, while they love each other, there's a whole song about that, how much they love each other very much. (laughs) It's pretty much the whole song, which is a Sparks thing (laughs) to do. Just have one song where they repeat like a lyric over and over and over again until it becomes almost like a, a mantra, a mantra, Buddhist chant kind of a thing. Like they're... Oh, they're in love. Are they in love? Are they really just having to say this to convince themselves they're in love? Mm-hmm. It's a great moment. I mean, it's a great thing. I can see some people getting really irritated by it. And that's I, where we the lose first, half the audience. The first time I heard it, I which was I actually saw that particular clip they released mm-hmm. it. Um I don't think they released it. as a general as a general viewing public clip, there might have been one or two things they snipped out of there. So no, it was only up oh. till them getting on the bike. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, but still, like the walk in the woods, and then them on the bike. That was all the clip that they actually released. Mm-hmm. Um. But during that time, the first time I watched it, I was just like, "Oh my god, this is gonna annoy the hell out of me, isn't it? I'm gonna hate this." <laughs> And then I sat down and watched it as part of the film itself, mm-hmm. and I understood it a lot better. And it makes so much more sense. If you watch the clip by itself, it doesn't work. It'll yeah. just annoy the fuck out of you. But then when you watch it in the context of the entire film itself, it does feel like a mantra. It does feel like it's not something that they're saying to convince each other so much as themselves. You're mm-hmm. right. Um, and... Ultimately, you know, and I think as we were watching it, I even said something to you, this, you know, this part of the movie, at least, or, you know, I was like, this movie's about fears of being a parent, fears of being in a relationship, uh, your fears own. Fears of being in a relationship with someone who's in a similar business to you mm-hmm. and watching their success over you. Yes. He is a stand-up comic. She mm-hmm. is an opera singer. Yes. And interestingly, too, and this is something I thought about just recently, they, we don't see them we don't have a meet cute for them, really. Nope. We we meet them as the audience midway through. You know, their their relationship has already started. You know, they're two famous people. They're already tabloid fodder. Um, I, I think that's an interesting choice. It kind of frees us from that burden of a meet cute where you're like, oh boy, I hope these kids work out. I think that's mm-hmm. that's a byproduct of you know those kind of romantic comedy tropes yeah. that I never even thought about. And actually I'm still kind of just uh, wrestling with the idea right now that when we see a couple or when we see two characters in a movie and they meet and you're like, Oh, okay. Oh, they see, Oh, this is so cute and wonderful how they're meeting and they're just, Oh, it's so romantic and you, and or adorable or whatever. And you automatically are invested in rooting for them. Mm-hmm. Here we have a, couple that's already existing and we don't necessarily have that pre-programming to be rooting for them as a couple yeah i'm not sure if that works to the movie's detriment or to its benefit but it definitely puts us viewing them on a different the way i view them was there i i think the love seems one-sided like the actual true feeling of emotion is one-sided. The other time it feels like control and resentment. So it's like a there is a weird uh, dissociation between yeah, those two. Both characters bring baggage to 
the relationship mm-hmm. that affects it and affects how they look at it. I think the movie is more interested in Adam Driver's baggage than hers. I agree. Um, very much so. And I think that affects a little bit, I think, how we look at the incident on the boat, mm. uh, which it, it, roughly halfway through the movie, I'm going to con- – normally we talk in like three-act structure for film. Uh, I, I look at this more as like a two-act structure, like a standard stage musical. I would agree with in, you in there. In terms of story It's like everything up to the boat is the first act. Anything after it is the second act. Yeah. 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 Um, so I was going somewhere. <laughs> I can't think of where I was going now, but go ahead. One of the things I, I, there was a particular scene where he's meeting her after a performance and they have a great little exchange where she asked, how did it go? And he said, I killed them. Mm-hmm. And what about you? I saved them. Yes. I how, loved how that exchange succ- so much. It, it, it's a great because it counterpoints how for comedy and I guess for opera or maybe the fine arts, how you can look at what success in your performance means. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, I saved them. I elevated them. I, you know, showed them something beautiful. And, you know, comedians talk about killing their audience. Oh, I slayed them. I murdered them. Mm-hmm. And if comics don't do good, what happens? They died. Ooh, I delivered that like it was like I was George Carlin. I I might be quoting a George Carlin bit uh, unintentionally. I here, love and also but. I love that in the credits, Chris Rock and Bill Burr got special thanks from Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'd love to find out just how much time he actually spent with them, or did he just research their careers in their stand-up comedy? That's interesting. Um, you know, because I was sitting there as I was watching it, thinking. The way he's talking about certain things, uh, the way he's kind of channeling his anger, uh, the the whole idea about smoking, yeah. uh, how he talks about smoking a bit, it felt very much like the late Bill Hicks's material from the 90s, yeah. 80s and 90s. I caught a little bit of what I thought was Bo Burnham. Yeah. And and I could see where uh, Bill, Barr, Bill Burr, Burnham, and you know Chris Rock all came after uh, Hicks, so they might be drawing on well outside of chris rock the other bills might be drawing on this bill <laughs> um but yeah and you know all comics and acknowledge generations beforehand and yeah, you know they course. take things and they make them their own and but, that's what i think driver did here too and i love how he has this obsession with her dying and her bowing i think there's another semblance of control there of how much you give it to a person, how much you give it to an audience mm-hmm. when you bow before them, that you th- you're grateful to them for elevating you to that to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think I think there's a certain resentment that he has of all she has to do is is die and she receives cheers. I die and I'm forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, yeah. the, the dichotomy of success or failure as an artist in those two different worlds. Very, very, uh, very uh, evocative. Yeah. So, um, but either I, way, this was a fantastic film. Yes. And we both would recommend it. Oh, highly. Yes. And, um, but let's segue over to the movie about the other, the other movie we saw featuring a more lot more death. A lot of more death, a lot of broken people. We're going from murder to suicide here. Yes, exactly. The Suicide Squad. Uh, I saw it early in this week, and I caught it again last night with uh, you and uh, your hubby and one of the stepkids. And I, I, okay, I know what the answer is to this, but I know I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good movie that I personally did not like for me. Okay. Okay, well, um, then, then let's start there. What, what about it? Okay, I know it's a matter of taste on a certain level, and I'm sure the fact that 
Peter Capaldi met an untimely end. Oh, I I, I couldn't even with, watch that part. I, I saw it coming, so I immediately covered my eyes. I glanced over and I just saw you like this or whatever. And I was like, yeah, I could have guessed that was going to happen. I did not want to see that. I know. I'm so glad that he's finally getting recognition and being up on the big screen. And he had a... Unlike uh, Pete Davidson or Nathan Fillon, he had a lot of screen time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it made me feel good to see Peter Capaldi being there, appreciated. There are a lot of recognizable names in this movie who don't hang around too long. Oh, and um, but but I like that in a certain way because it sets up an element of danger. I mean, I made the joke about uh, the Joss Whedon Award for uh, not loving, not letting your characters hang around for too long goes to. Uh, writer-director James Gunn. And And I said that would work doubly because Nathan Fillon's in this and he is a a a darling of uh, Whedon and Gunn. Yes. But, I mean, this movie right off the bat... uh, Kills off one of the original Suicide Squad members in under two and a half minutes. (laughs) I think it does that, though. It... It it works from a story standpoint because, you know, uh, okay, half step back. Suicide Squad is a bunch of uh, superhero uh, super villains uh, recruited by the government to go on dangerous black ops missions. If they live, they um, get some time off of their sentence. If they don't live, well, the government can just disavow them. And. The movie is basically – it starts like right at the beginning of the mission, has a brief flashback to set up things. But that's only after you see how disastrous the the mission goes for one, one part of the team. While with, and basically they were sacrificial lambs anyways. They were put you know, in a position to be uh, a diversion so a smaller group could land on this island and go about their mission, which is – I mean – from from a uh, uh, standpoint, uh, a tactical standpoint yeah. that is makes absolute sense. Yeah, perfect sense. Um, it's I don't know what do you want to call this the uh, Saving Private Ryan of uh, supervillains uh, with supervillains there that beach landing because it's it does not go well for a lot of people, um, and it also by you know disposing sort of, of Dunkirky as well. Yeah, yeah. But by disposing of one of the characters who is a holdover from the, the first, first film. film from 2016's Suicide Squad, uh, I think it definitely is also James Gunn kind of going, nope, this is my movie. It's it's a statement of intent. It's my movie. It's not the previous movie. It's going to be a different movie. Same same concept. Some of the same characters. Some new characters. Different, Completely different kind of tone. But this was James Gunn making that statement that boom this is my movie and put aside anything you want uh or any baggage you have about the previous film and i mean so that so it works on a metaphorical metatextual level as well and i i think part of what i'm i have a problem with is it's a sequel that is not a sequel it's a full pretty much a full-on reboot it's so much down to even keeping the name and just adding a the on it talk about making that fucking confusing let's watch suicide squad which one Mm -hmm. the suicide squad oh okay that one the one with the definite article in front of it but that doesn't make it easier for anyone who just knows suicide squad yeah yeah i mean it's it's a tough thing to have marketed or a tough decision to have made to call this thing the suicide squad it's like redconning the first one without redconning the first mm-hmm. one. And that's where I'm having trouble is either you did or you didn't. I can't see keeping some of the ideas and then tossing everything else out. Plus, they wasted a shit ton of people. Okay? If you're going to bring in some, you know characters that you're going to kill off don't use such big fucking names i like that though think of it hold on hold on hold on okay no 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 you're right what i was uh, let me finish okay 
if they were all people you didn't know, then yeah, you'd kind of be, be, yeah, be, yeah, yeah. be. These you'd are the red shirts. It. And these are the guys who are going to be fed into the meat grinder. Unless all but one or two of them. Like keeping, I thought that was impressive. Having Harley, Rick Flag, and Boomer be in the first wave with the rest of these unknowns. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. Because um, what if it's it sets up? Yeah, a, a couple of them might bite the dust. Not all of them. What if we end up having a new Harley or someone popping up from that group? But we haven't seen them yet. We don't know them. We've never even met these actors before. What if they have the chance to... Sh- it's James Gunn. He's kind of famous for taking people who are just have been around forever and elevating them to a new stature. Mm -hmm. He did that with Michael Rooker. He's been around for so long, for decades in Mm -hmm. this business. And he made him Yondu and made him (laughs) a fucking national treasure as Mary Poppins. (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I'll agree with you there. But I, I I like and then the he dusts his he dusts Rooker in the first minute or two. Come on, <laughs> I like that though. That's a great feint. Um, it's 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 the same kind of feint that Alfred Hitchcock does in Psycho with Janet Lee. Janet Lee was like height of stardom when she was cast in Psycho, and everybody and he kills her off in like the first half hour of the movie. Which is great but because that's no still one a was half an hour more than two minutes. Well, still, but it's the same thing where you're like, he's fucking with your expectations, of based on the casting, and I like that. I would like to see more movies where I don't want to see, and and this is a factor where you know some people like Dwayne Johnson have things built into their contract that say, you know. I can't lose a fight or whatever. You know, you hear stuff like that. Or I can only hit, you know, be hit five times, but I have to hit seven times or something like, yeah, stupid stuff like that. You know, because they have, their ego is attached to their image. I would love to see more films where you're like, oh, who's the star of this? George Clooney. And then George Clooney gets killed in like the first 15 minutes. And then we keep going on. I would love stuff that played with our expectations like that. And I, I really appreciated that here. You know, because... When I I when I saw this, you know, at the screening the first time, I was like, I was shocked that they killed off Captain Boomerang because he was a fan favorite from the first film, and you know, if, if honestly, if I was writing this movie and there's like, take who you want and kill them all from the first movie, I was like, well, it's not gonna be Captain Boomerang. I like him. And that's that's the hard creative choice that I think Gunn makes. You know, I would have killed off like El Diablo or somebody. Somebody. El like, Diablo is already dead. Oh, well, that's right. That's right. He's already dead. Somebody who, you know, from the first movie who. The Croc. Uh, Killer Croc, maybe. Yeah. Killer Croc, because you can kill him off. And I was like, eh, he's a pain in the ass character. I don't like him that much. But it's a tough character to kill. So you 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 get rid of a character you don't want to write while elevating the threat level. Because you've killed off a hard-to-kill character. Mm-hmm. I mean, Captain Boomerang's kind of goofy. I mean, if you look at it, it's like, oh, he throws a boomerang at people, but then you see him like slice the guy's head in half, and I heard you chuckle when the brain, <laughs> when the when the skull slid <laughs> off the guy, <laughs> the top of the skull slid it off. It was like watching Underworld, and when she goes right through Bill Nye's face, and mm-hmm. there's that second, and then all of a sudden, his half his head falls right off yep. the other. Half I, of the body. I heard you chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> you sick little girl, you. Um, but, you know, so I appreciate, you know, what that scene does in terms of James Gunn severing ties to the past while keeping some intact because we still have Viola Davis as Amanda Waller and she's fantastic. And obviously her new set of underlings don't know what a bitch she is because they're like, making bets on who's going to survive the thing, survive the mission and stuff like that. And um, obviously they don't know in the last movie, she just, you know, casually killed her her, entire team, her support staff. Yeah. Because they saw too much. She's like, yeah, you know, blew them away. Uh, So I admire their brazenness. 
<laughs> I admire their brazenness when one of them knocks her out. <laughs> yes. That's, yeah, uh, we're, spoilers are still in effect here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should have said that before you yeah. said that they killed off Cat and Boomerang. Well, that happens in like the first five minutes. <laughs> I think I think talking about that is intric- integral to talking about this film. Well, we at, don't say why they knocked her out, but they knocked her out, which was, it felt good because yeah. she killed her moment. entire support staff then. This is almost like a weird second wave of revenge. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit, mm. Harley's escape scene, I've heard people say it's like one of the best things that they've ever seen. It was a little, with the cage fights, it was a little too close to the prisoner fight in Birds of Prey. Okay. Yeah, I, I see where they're they're similar. Yeah. Um, it has its own style and its own flair to it, mm-hmm. which I really liked. Um, but that particular section felt very close mm-hmm. just it's not raining <laughs> <laughs> um the one thing i did like about harley's escape though was of course the use of the louis jordan song uh just a gigolo and um uh, who louis prima louis prima jeepers kittens and cats <laughs> um sorry yeah louis prima thank you good catch um I know I'm going to hear about this forever now. You should know better. No. You of all people. Um but it wasn't entirely like dead all the action notes were like dead on the beat of the song but they were in with the rhythm of the song. Mm-hmm. Which I really liked. That was a great piece. I don't think we've seen something that stylistically done an action piece stylistically done to music like that that well choreographed i would say almost back to um Shaun of the dead uh, uh, yeah with the queen song yeah yep. okay yeah okay um and you know again you know we've 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 said this before on this show that you know among the directors who use uh pre-existing music the best are tarantino edgar wright um and uh, James Gunn here, so I would agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, other than that, I thought it was a a wildly good time. Um, my inner ten year old is completely shocked that you know characters like Polka Dot Man show up <laughs> and are given decent art. I liked his character. Why? Um. He he felt like the new Harley who had sprung out of the new group. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the fact that, yes, we're going to use Starro, and we're going to make him a credible threat. By the way, on the way home, I looked at Darren, and uh, we were talking num-num for a second. <laughs> and she, he goes, ah, oh, Stallone. I went, wait, what? Oh, you didn't realize that was no! Stallone doing the voice? <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you don't know it, you could probably not recognize it. But once you know it, it's so obvious. It's one of those cases. Dum dum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another one of James Gunn's uh... bird. Now, now, stay off the comps. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, definitely a very different version of King Shark than we've seen on uh, the Flash or on the, the Harley Quinn. Uh... TV show. That's right. That's right. I forgot he's on the cartoon as well. But uh, now it wasn't for you, but is it still something you would recommend? Absolutely. Okay. Just because just because a film isn't my personal taste, mm-hmm. and honest to God, it is a rare occasion when I find a good, entertaining movie that just isn't hitting me. It's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been doing this podcast for how many years at this point? Uh, about three, almost. How many times does that happen? I can't really think of any, but there's exactly. probably one or two in there, maybe. The, it, exactly. Um, it barely ever happens. Mm-hmm. So I would still recommend this. Enjoy it. You know, take your family, take your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, hang on. Um, maybe not the kids. Uh, <laughs> 
This thing definitely earns its R rating. It, it gleefully, as I put in my review, it, it, it gleefully it earns so its so much. It's like, I'm going for an R and I'm going to have fun. I don't think it, it's it's gory, but it's not we, we, we get dick. Gory. Yeah. We get full yeah. on dick at one there, point. Yeah, wow. Well, for about four four tenths of a second, but still. Still. Um, and um, there's a little bit of boobage in there, too. Uh, when they're t- oh yeah, yeah. the the, yeah. the the club okay yeah, yeah. there's a little bit so of there's you know equal opportunity nudity um, thank you James Gunn <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not I don't want to say it's not real it's not realistic gore in on a certain level it is but it doesn't it it doesn't no it, it does feel kind of stylized like for example when Nanawe rips that guy apart and mm-hmm. you've got like the stringy bits hanging and, on and you see some like intestine falling out from the one side yeah but it's also backlit it's gorgeous it's, it's, it's gorgeous a beautiful sh- oh my god yeah i was like i would maybe have that as a piece of art on my wall <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's i mean it's I don't want to say it's not gratuitous because at times it feels a little gratuitous. Sometimes it does, yeah. But in a fun way, not in a gross out way. Uh, no, there is one gross out way for me. Which way? Which one? The little bird that was feeding on Michael Rooker's brains. <laughs> I mean, there there's a reasoning it's, for that. It's that a, again, it's a, it's a nice little it's a revenge punch, moment. It's a beautiful punchline. Yeah. When yeah. To a joke that was made like two minutes prior, mm-hmm. um, but it's still one of those. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's even it's... Pete Davidson's face was kind of grody. <laughs> That's after he got shot, or in the face, or before. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Pete Davidson, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> you know, so if I would say, you know, if you have a teenager who is. You're fine with them, like quick flashes of nudity, uh, a tremendous amount of the use of the word fuck, and you don't <laughs> mind like silly violence or gratuitous, and not slapsticky, but splat sticky, almost like tonally kind of close to Evil Dead in some ways. I've Maybe? not seen Evil Dead, but I know kind of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Stop giving me that look. You know this already. I know, but it's fun to give you that look. Uh- I'm going <laughs> to throw this at your head. Um, Actually, there is one last thing I want to mention that um, I actually I really was, liked. I was going to say, though, ultimately, if you're a parent and you're you're fine with stuff like that, this is a good fir- this is a good first R-rated movie for a teenager. I would agree. Yeah. It's... It doesn't deal with heavy themes um, that you might not want them uh, digging into yet. Uh, so, you know, it's fun. It's it's a fun film. And even like the, the violence itself sometimes is used for comedy. Like the uh, the ego piss fight going on between <laughs> Bloodshot and Peacemaker of who's the better killer. As they infiltrate that camp. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the pop. Non-lethal. Uh, you lose. Exploding bullet. No one likes to show off. Uh, that Unless sequence... they're showing off is dope as fuck. <laughs> he just... Fuck, when Idris... Right. Yeah, Idris Alba turns around. Fucking In that right. sequence, though, I don't want to say too much, but the one thing he does with the hatchet is hilarious. That's all we're going to say. But I'm like, that is one of the best sight gags in the movie. Thank you, John Cena, for that. That was amazing. Um, I loved that so much. John Cena is starting to really establish himself as a good comedy actor. Yeah. And it'll be interesting. And considering how bland and what a charismaless void he was in F9 earlier this summer, too. Um, but I'm very anxious to see. Uh, the Peacemaker uh, TV series six hour episode six one hour episodes that's going to be on HBO Max next early next year. Also, all written and directed by James Gunn. So okay, <laughs> oh, that's okay. Gonna... I guess I'll have to watch it now. <laughs> it's gonna. I be... wasn't interested because, honest, his character really started to annoy me to the mm-hmm. point that I I did not. I was getting pissed off of the movie yeah. just because of him. Well, that that's part of the whole Warner's DC um, movies and thing is they're trying to find every movie that they make is there some kind of um opportunity here opportunity to do a tv series um matt reeves the batman Mm -hmm. has um 
a six, I guess six episode um, thing for uh, uh, just focusing on Gotham PD. Um, also, I think, I don't know if it's still happening or not, but at one point they were looking at doing a Dune spinoff too, focusing on um, the Bene Gesserit. Uh, the the nuns. I know. The I know spooky, the Benazers. The spooky, weird nun type people in Dune. I I'd be down for that. I want to know uh-huh. a little more about the backstory of the Benazeret. I've been. Mm-hmm. I, that's actually something I've been interested yeah. in. But there is a really good moment that I really wanted to bring up before we closed. Okay. Harley's ability to now recognize toxic people in her life. <laughs> that was. Something that I I thought was a a really great closure moment that we get sort of from Birds of Prey. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely a partial conclusion to the arc that you know kind of started in the first Suicide Squad movie, mm-hmm. um, and was elaborate. You know, mostly towards the end. Uh, then was kind of elaborated on as part of her journey in Birds of Prey. Yeah. To this moment, um, and I I haven't seen Gunn really talk about that in any interviews he's done, but I would love to you know hear him address that. You know, was he looking at stuff that happened in uh, Birds of Prey, or was this something that Margot kind of brought to the table? Yeah, who who brought that? I mean, obviously Harley's still batshit bonkers, anyways. But well, yeah, she's batshit bonkers. But she starts to realize when people in her life are not going to be positive influences on her life. True. And uh, and I think that's a good lesson mm-hmm. to teach any person. Very true. Okay. And I think on that note, that's going to wrap us up for this week. Now, remember, Annette is currently in theaters right now, as is Suicide Squad. Uh, Suicide Squad is also available on HBO Max. And Annette will be available on Amazon Prime on the 20th of this month. Remember, you can find us online at bigpicturepod.com. And we are now available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there. Search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a positive review because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We will be back next time with a review of a movie we have been waiting for since we first saw the uh, um, the trailer and a little sneak peek at New York Comic Con, October 2019, <laughs> and that's Ryan Reynolds in and Jodie Comer. Thank you. You're welcome. And Taika Waititi in okay. Free Guy. And that's all right here on the Big Picture Podcast.